Welcome to Conversations That Heal. This is your host, Susan Jacoby. On this episode of Conversations That Heal, I have invited Sherry Botwin, a licensed clinical social worker who has been counseling survivors of trauma, abuse, and eating disorders for over 20 years in a private practice. Sherry has been published and interviewed on several national media outlets for the Cosby trial, the Orlando nightclub shootings, the Paris Massacre, and other related stories. To learn more about Sherry, visit her website at sherrybotwin.com. Talking about your traumatic story is crucial to your healing. The traumatic story can include a natural disaster, perhaps a car accident, living with an alcoholic parent, or like myself, a survivor, a thriver of childhood abuse. Sherry, I have found that it's it's hard to share your story, and I, the first thing I wanted to ask you is why is it so important to to talk about your traumatic event? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be able to have a conversation with you. In terms of why it's so important, people who go through different types of trauma are not able to process or digest any of what they're thinking or feeling as they're going through it. Most people are just doing what they can to survive. What happens is once the trauma ends, people are left then feeling things about it, whether it's fear, shame, sadness, anger. So in order to really be able to overcome and live with whatever event or events someone has been through, it's more like, I would say, life-saving, life-altering life to be able to find words or find a way to talk about and express and tell your story. It's sort of a way to take ownership of it and say, this is something that actually happened to me. If, if we don't do that, if we go through horrible or unexplainable things in our lives, like you're saying you have been through some childhood abuse stuff, if you go through that and you don't have a way to talk about it or understand it, what ends up happening is you live in a world filled with silence. And a lot of people, when they come into therapy, will talk about living in a world that's very isolated and feel by themselves in it, which is hugely damaging, especially if you've been through something terrible and need support. As I was putting this show together, I was thinking about my healing journey and that my my memories and, and I, I guess you could officially call it my healing began in 1998. As I look back on that and reflect on that, I can see how my life mimicked that of a trauma survivor, almost uh, textbook. Of course, I had no awareness of that, and I had absolutely no awareness of the impact of my abusive childhood or living with an alcoholic father um, had it on my life. What I'm curious is, is how you can talk about something that you don't remember. How does that balance itself out? That, that's a really important point actually because what you're describing and what I see all the time is people bury the thoughts and the feelings associated with anything that has happened to them and they they don't have any words or they feel like they don't really have a clear memory of what happened to them so when somebody 
comes into therapy and says to me that there's different things that have been going on in their life that make them feel the same feelings that somebody feels when they've been in trauma or abuse. I think where we start or where I start is to just try to help people work through by naming some of the feelings or talking about some of the situations that have occurred since the, we'll say abuse in the situation, since the abuse ended as a way to help them put the pieces of the puzzle together. When I when I think of trauma recovery, I, I think of a, a jigsaw puzzle all over my office and we know how to start the puzzle. When we're in school, we learn you always start with the corners. One of the things that I always think about with trauma recovery is it's not like that. You can't just start from the beginning, go to the middle, and then have the end, especially when there's years that go by where memory, there's a loss of memory, there's a lack of understanding of the events or even the order of the events. So I think the best place to start is to just sit in, whether it's therapy or any type of situation where you're trying to make sense of things and just start exploring the feelings that you're having in your life now and try to link them back to different situations that you went through, even if you don't remember most of the event. We usually, when we go through trauma, because I also have a history of childhood abuse in my, in my life, when we go through that, we are not, we're not able to really grab a hold of or keep in touch with the facts. And one of the hardest things to do is to be able to accept that if you have gone through things and you're deciding in your early adulthood or middle adulthood that you want to work it through, you have to be able to accept that you're not going to be able to do it in a clean and clear way. It, it can be very overwhelming and very confusing. But the way I always started, again, is I'll sit with people and I'll say, let's talk about some situations that you've been in in your life, whether it's your marriage, your role as a mom, your role as a therapist, doctor, teacher. Let's talk about examples where you find yourself feeling afraid to speak up or where you find yourself feeling like it's not okay to say no. And then I'll say to people, does that feel familiar? The thing that you remember feeling when you were growing up, again, even if you don't remember specifics of your abuse or your trauma, and when, when I do that with people and when I did that for myself in therapy, it helped me to really trust and believe my experience and know that I wasn't just saying things just to say them, that these were really things that I lived through. And in session with patients, I try to help people, again, trust themselves and what they're feeling and be able to look at their life and make connections. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I feel like, that's a place where, where I will often start, especially because a lot of people come in to see me years after the abuse ends. Most people don't show up to therapy within a year or two of their abuse ending. It usually takes people, in most cases, I would say one to two decades to be able to actually confront their abuse. So that's kind of the way I will look at it or will start the process. That process that, that you've described, is that process similar when you're talking to someone who's been, uh, let's say, through a natural disaster like all these horrific hurricanes and, and earthquakes? Would you say that 
that their path to healing is similar to that of a abuse survivor? You know what, I would say the one difference is when I work with somebody who's been through like a plane crash or a hurricane, they don't experience the feelings of fear and shame that somebody who has been through abuse will feel. So oftentimes people will start talking about their experience sooner, which means that the process can then be much quicker. I think the other thing that I would say is when somebody goes through something like a natural disaster, the impact, the loss, the grief is the same in some ways, but it's also different because most people know when they live through a hurricane, they have no role in that. It's a very unfortunate, awful thing to have to go through, but we know that we don't have any, we can't predict, we can't be made, we, we can't be made to feel responsible when a hurricane shows up in our city. But when somebody is going through abuse, this is the part that I think keeps most people silent. The, uh, people will struggle with, and I, I'm sure you can relate to this, and I know I can relate to this, that sense of protection of our the people that hurt us, the part of us that feels so responsible, all those feelings complicate abuse recovery, and it's one thing that makes recovery from a disaster easier. I think the thing that's harder is the devastation and the enormous loss that somebody confronts when they're going through a hurricane. It's almost like one minute you wake up and your whole world has collapsed. I think when somebody's going through abuse, they feel that way in moments, but then there are things that that we or they can do to sort of stay connected to hope and the idea that, like, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, not so much for somebody who's who's in Puerto Rico right now and maybe without all their belongings, may have lost family members, they've completely lost control over their life, and I think that that can be devastating. So I'd say it's sort of the same, but it's also very different. My My hope about the disasters is that there's there's so much attention that's put on it that it helps people feel less alone. I think that's the one, there's no advantage to going through something horrible like that, but the one advantage when I compare it is that when somebody goes through any type of abuse, even domestic violence, they, are, they, they feel so alienated and by themselves. When somebody's going through a hurricane, they have witnesses, they have people they can sit down and talk to about what just happened. They have people they can go to when they need help after it's over. So uh, there, there are differences and there are similarities. You were talking about minimizing, protecting the abuser, you know, all, all of that stuff I spent literally decades doing, especially if it's an um, immediate family member, like a parent, grandparent, an uncle, sibling, whatever. For me, there was this huge struggle, like I was a rubber band of wanting to protect the parent, wanting to justify their actions, wanting to take the responsibility. Absolutely any excuse in the book that would minimize the events or justify their actions. The sense of responsibility, the protection that we will feel for towards those that have hurt us, and like you said, especially if it's somebody that we're in some type of relationship with, 
is probably the most damaging part, is probably the reason why you and me and half of the people that come into my practice don't speak. Because what happens is, is we, we are made to feel like if we say something, we are gonna, we're going to ruin somebody else's life. But the way I try to reframe that is it's not the speaking that's the problem. It's that it happened. And you're actually making me think of somebody that I just had a session with this week. She's, she's in her middle 20s, and she's been working maybe like the last four or five years to have an independent adult life and find ways to have boundaries with people that have hurt her. And most of the time she's able to set limits around contact and say no. But what happens is is then she goes through what we call like a guilt attack or a shame attack for setting that boundary. And we, when we were having the session the other day, she was saying, you know, I did a great job on the phone. I was able to say no and be okay with it. But then minutes after I hang up, I start feeling like I'm a horrible person. How could I do that to somebody? So what I, what I did with her was try to remind her of why she has the boundaries set up and how it best protects her. Because again, like the worst part about abuse is that people who are supposed to be having our best interests at heart are the ones that in, in cases like ours are doing the hurt. We need to be able to find ways to protect ourselves. And when you come from a, a family where your protection was not, was not respected, that can be hugely challenging to then realize, wait a minute, I'm I'm the one that was supposed to be protected and I'm the one that needs to protect myself. I think, again, that's one of the main reasons why so many people don't speak. They just don't want to feel like they're doing something wrong to somebody else. I found on my healing journey is how much energy I have spent in denying, protecting dismissing my history. The bottom line to all of that is to avoid the pain of it, the pain of the abandonment, of the betrayal, of all of it. That it's easier to put that on me. I'm used to it. I have a what I think is a pattern to take care of it, which never seems to work out the way that I fantasize about it, it's hard to grasp the, the reality of the events and the impact that they've had on your life until you take that step to talk about it. I mean, everything that you're saying, I can totally relate to. And people will come in into my office earlier in the work and say to me, why do I have to feel all this? And why can't, why can't I just get over this? And why does this affect me so much? And the thing is, most people are fighting to not know, fighting to not feel whatever pain, despair, loss that they're left with. The, the problem with that, and again, I don't ever want to see anybody feel pain, but if we spend our lives trying to push away our feelings, especially those related to trauma, whether it's pain, loss, grief, shame, then we end up doing other things like for some people developing an eating disorder, some people developing addictions, um, or being just recreating their abandonment history by connecting to people who really aren't accessible or available. 
we think we're doing ourselves a favor in a way by kind of avoiding the knowing and the feeling thing. But really what we're doing is we're just holding ourselves back from living fully. So this is one of the biggest challenges in the work for me and for anybody I'm in therapy with. How do you make space and how do you balance out finding a way to grieve and know but also stay alive and be fully present in in today that is like a huge challenge and then the other thing i'm thinking anytime there's a holiday a birthday anything that reminds us of where we come from even if we're we're thinking oh today's going to be a great day we will we'll we'll get triggered i have to kind of make myself know and be aware to some extent why i'm making the choices I'm making today, and while it's very painful and I would rather not, it's in making space to feel that and acknowledge those feelings that I actually end up having a good day. I don't have to just be reliving or re-experiencing pain and grief. I can find some time and a way to express my feelings and feel my feelings, but then I make space to be alive and enjoy the day and maybe even create a new memory or or start a new tradition that I never was able to do when I was growing up. I always say that holidays as an adult are a good time to create new traditions for yourself, ones that, that you will cherish, maybe you know ones that your children will remember. One thing I want to really uh, emphasize to the listeners here is what Sherry and I are talking about I mean, I can't speak for Sherry, but I'll I'll speak for myself. Um, It has taken me years, probably 18 years of really hard, sometimes like for a few years, daily therapeutic work to get to where I am now. My intention of this show is to emphasize similar we all are, not to throw in the, the seed of judgment that, you know, well, I'm not there yet, so I can't look to that, or I might as well just forget about this because I can't do what they're doing. This whole healing process is a journey. I've heard some people say, oh, you'll, you know, you can heal from PTSD. My experience is there, there is no healing in PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or triggers, or, or shame. What it comes down to is loving yourself, learning to love yourself, learning to um, honor yourself, learning to be patient and kind with yourself. And all of those things that I just mentioned are attributes that as a child, as a baby born into this world, you had a right to have. People raising you neglected that. And so now it becomes a journey of, or a puzzle almost, of teaching yourself those things, of loving yourself, of, of worthiness, that you are lovable. It's not easy. It, it's a daily, minute by minute sometimes, awareness. Has that been any of your experiences with your clients, with yourself? I think all the above. I think, and I also just wanted to comment on when you were saying about there's no judgment and, um, you know, not to compare yourself to where somebody else is in their recovery. 
there's no such thing as it's too late and there's no such thing as it's taking too long. Everybody's process is different. Everybody's journey is different. We all have different circumstances that are going to affect our ability or inability to work through things. I actually just got a call today from a 68-year-old male who has been dealing with depression, PTSD, it sounds to me like for over 40 years, but said that he had never been able to sit down in therapy and talk about his trauma. So he's calling me today because he wants to start that process. And what I'm thinking as I'm on the phone, my heart breaks a little bit because I think he's had to live that long in silence. That's so sad. But then another part of me feels so, so much joy and relief that this person is taking action because it's never too late. Um, And then in terms of the whole PTSD triggers, I think what I've realized, and this took me a while, I used to always say in therapy, when is this going to be over? When are we going to be done this, this uncovering thing? Or how much longer do I have to have flashbacks? Uh Uh-huh. And then I realized, and it took me a long time, I realized that it, it was in having the flashbacks or in being triggered that's my brain, brain's way of saying to me, pay attention. There's something going on right now that needs focus because you're trying to work through something that you haven't worked. So rather than trying to cure PTSD or, or live a life without triggers, I sort of start every day knowing I will be hit with multiple flashbacks. I will be triggered. But what's most important to me, like you were saying, is how do I deal with it? Do I take care of myself in it? Do I try to find ways to comfort myself? Learning how to parent ourselves, especially if you come from a place where you were neglected or or your well-being was not considered, that's, I think that's empowering. And I think sometimes I'll think, in a way, I feel like I'm lucky because the smallest of things that maybe I can do for myself will make me feel maybe joy or or excitement in a way that probably I wouldn't even think about if I were just sort of going through my life and didn't have these experiences earlier on in my life. So I always try to find a way to flip the hopelessness and the exhaustion and the frustration and make it seem or make it feel like it's 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 hopeful, like there's good things that are coming out of that flashback that I just had earlier today because now it's going to help me to set a boundary or now it's going to help me to be able to make a better decision about a relationship that if I were quote-unquote cured from my flashbacks and my triggers, maybe I would be then just repeating the same thing over and over again. I can see where we could spend hours talking about this and unfortunately we don't have hours for the person who can't afford therapeutic emotionally as they think they're not ready for it, which that has to be your own decision when you are ready and when you're not ready to see a therapist. Let's say someone's listening to us in in Kansas who doesn't have the luxury of talking to somebody. Do you have steps that, that would help soothe their anxiety or give them a a way of bringing self-love into their life? I mean, that's a great question. 
because there are definitely people out there that can't do the work due to resources, and some people can't do, do the work due to health reasons, occupational or family situations. In terms of finding help, there are ways that you can access support even if you don't have health insurance and you don't have money. So to be able to go to resources like RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, or Sidron, S-I-D-R-A-N, these are just two of the ones that are popping in my head right now. If you go to those type of organizations, they can help you find counseling that would not cost any money. There, there are more and more trauma-related support systems being set up for people. So that that's one thing I want to say. If you're in a situation where it just doesn't make sense for you to be doing trauma work right now or being in therapy, anything you can do to, like you said, comfort yourself or express yourself, whether it's through journaling, yoga, listening to the podcast that you do every week, anything that you can do to know, number one, you're not alone, and number two, you you can do things to, to take care of yourself. You're not in a place where you can speak about whatever it is that has happened to you. That To me, that's the, the worst part. If, if someone is sitting there feeling like, I can't afford to go to therapy, I don't feel ready to do this type of work, so I guess I'm going to have to just sit here and be feeling horrible. I don't want that for anybody. I don't think anybody should have to live through the stuff that we live through, but I definitely don't think that we should have to or anyone should have to suffer because they're, for whatever reason, they can't access what supports that they need. The good thing about the world we live in right now in 2017 is there are also more and more types of online support systems. And again, you have to be careful. You don't want to sign yourself up for some type of a support system that's going to open you up and leave you feeling raw and more triggered, but maybe to just look and see, is there a place even where you can do some reading or even just knowing there's other people out there that aren't able to get the help that they want or need so that you can talk to somebody about that. So anything you can do to link yourself to another person, anything you can do to educate yourself, anything you can do to comfort yourself, even things like having a pet or putting yourself in an environment where you can focus on the, you know the the beauty of our world these are these sound like small things but these are the things that if people do that then they're going to be much less likely to suffer with depression eating disorders um, alcoholism drug addiction it's sort of like biggest challenge and it's a challenge for anybody whether they're in therapy or not but I definitely think that the reason why I I want to go on wanted to go on the podcast with you is because I know there are people listening right now who don't have the the ability to step into an office and start doing the work. But I think that somebody could be listening to this podcast right now and maybe know or realize something they didn't know a half hour ago or even maybe just feel less alone. That's That's pretty powerful when you spend years being by yourself and in silence. So there's definitely hope out there. Yes. And, and I'm glad that you mentioned all that. I know I can relate to how incredibly alone I felt 
of like the first 10 years, even though I was in therapy, just how, you know, isolating. If you are in a, um, a survivor of child abuse or if you have a alcoholic parent or I guess those would be the two main ones, you, you as a child, the listener as a child, isolation was the main line for the alcoholic or the abuser. I mean, to keep you isolated is to keep the secret. Right off the bat, you have the, the isolation against you without even maybe in some cases being mindful of it. All of this work, all of it, requires to be gentle with yourself, to be kind to yourself. If you don't know what that looks like, I mean, I I didn't know what kindness looked like to me for a really long time. Sure, I knew what the word meant, but I didn't know how to apply it into my life because I had no experience with it. It's just a matter of, like like Sherry's saying, reading about it. When all is said and done, self-love, um, self-worth, uh, because the truth of the matter is, is you are worthy of loving yourself, no matter what anyone says, especially no matter what you say to yourself. They're, those are lies. It's just really important to be gentle and aware of how you're responding to your feelings, your thoughts, your actions. The one thing I would want to leave everyone with is if you're in a spot where you just feel alone or shut down, alienated, try to do the opposite of the feeling. If you feel like you're by yourself, do something that makes you know you're not by yourself. It sounds simple, but I think it's sort of like a way to reclaim your right to be connected to others to be heard. And then the only other thing I'm thinking, because I don't know, we may be having listeners out there who are currently in a situation where they're feeling unsafe or being mistreated. It's not the speaking that's the problem. It's that it's happening. And if there's any way you can tell yourself that, even if it's 50,000 times in an hour, you speaking about something that is being done to you is not what's going to cause the problem. It's that you're living in that situation So those are two things that I'm thinking that I wanted to leave people with. Those are two things that I I know the doing the opposite thing probably got me through some of the worst of times when I was earlier in my recovery. Just being able to do the opposite helped me to feel hopeful and helped me feel like I had some control in feelings that felt completely out of my control. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise. It's been um, a joy to have this conversation with you. To learn more about Sherry and her work in the world, again, visit her website at SherryBotwin.com. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. Please contact me at Susan at ConversationsAtHeal.com if I can support you on your healing journey. Leave a comment on Blog Talk or iTunes to support us in reaching listeners in search of living a life of peace and joy. You are a lovable and a capable human being. Thank you for listening to Conversations That Heal.